0: start with whatever um explain to me explain Milady to me <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, yeah please down explain or or the fucking <laughs> I think um, it's
1: it's good before we even start that we have uh Stacy on the podcast because I feel like Stacy and Macy were were basically the people who kind of broke the Milady story so that that's kind of fortuitous I think Stacy would have a good kind of representation of what was going on on the cuteness unit side. You, uh, when that was all going Yeah, you down.
0: unmasked uh You Charlie. unmasked
1: Charlie. Was was mostly
2: though. There's like serious <laughs> lore here then.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. it was mostly Macy's undoing, and I was just like Macy passively was washed, it. Um, watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, a long while ago, like a couple of years on Twitter, there was this guy named Mia, who was like this like almost like esoteric
2: yeah, it yeah. <laughs> was like Caliac, K- right? Caliac, yeah. Invented, yeah, the Caliac.
3: And then um he got kicked off on Twitter or whatever. Um and then eventually like these NFT like neo GB stuff started popping up. And then um it was just basically stuff about like <laughs> like worshiping asian women and asian aesthetics um and
1: uh we'll say every 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 asian woman under 100 pounds and under the age of 60
3: yes the anorexic yeah you you don't forget the pro-anna yeah Yeah. (laughs) the pro-anna stuff and so this got like traction really quickly because people just started like having these like milady profile pictures okay and then at one point i think like i don't i don't remember how macy did it but she like there was this like group chat called hot pot um mm-hmm. that all the the people were in and charlie fang charlotte fang was yeah. uh the the main person behind it and it turns out that they were mia
2: okay um, so it's the return of Caliac.
3: it's the return right. of Caliac, um, Right. And. Yeah, a ladies are still alive today. Um, doing better than say, ever. Elon Musk, doing
2: yeah. I was gonna say, like, <laughs> Elon retweeted one or tweeted one the other day. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, my, my whole like for you page is nothing but m'ladies. I'm like, I, I don't know what it is. I,
0: yeah, they're it's enough. actually like super satanic and it actually shows how it kind of works. The fact that they got Elon to to tweet about it but I'm a little yeah. salty about that personally but whatever <laughs> yeah and
3: like ever since moving to New York there's um there's this bar uh that all the times people inhabit mm, yeah in the Lower East Side um and a couple times I've seen like people in like Remilia caps just like in the bar and I'm like wow this is like the there's like some deep teal funding to this. Yeah.
0: Well, there are only like six, what is it, like six people removed or something like that from the yeah. Hillary Foundation? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um,
2: so it, it is wild, you know, just it's like the 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 Twitter timeline has invaded real life, which you know, back in like the the heyday of like accelerationist Twitter, that's what it was theorizing and you know, Cal kind of I guess took its cue from that. So it's been a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah, I will agree that
0: a... to the extent that they have a mastery over hyperstition. It's like, okay, there's some yeah. there's some respectable attributes about this, but
2: yeah, and I, yeah. I guess like the, the dubious part, that, like kind of comes to mind. Besides like the personas involved, and it's like you know that kind of hyperstition, and it's kind of classical. Landian form is that you you think that you're controlling it, but you're not really. So like, what's working through that? You know, it's uh, the the call yeah. of the old ones, or however uh, Nick Land yeah. phrased it.
0: <laughs> those were my primary. I wrote a couple of pieces about Milady, and those were my primary. Like they were like, you're not engaging with the the theory. If you really wanted to, you're coping so hard, seethe. Um, but I was like, no. My main criticisms are just with your metaphysics. I think that's why they it kind of went whoosh over them because it was like i'm not really critiquing the nft it's mostly your metaphysics um and i think i think they were (sighs) i think they were kind of pretending that they were the process and they were mistaking identity with the process i think that was my biggest gripe
1: right
2: so they fell into like a humanist trap in a way despite themselves
1: yeah it's like i think they they have a lot of like metaphysical like hogwash around it in reality it's just that they're especially mia uh is probably the biggest megalomaniac the internet has maybe be, ever seen they're just obsessed with becoming famous so they work right. like non-stop do everything they can to like take over the sphere um and i think what's interesting about what like macy and stacy kind of did by pointing out that this is mia is mia uh, back when like there was no uh you know there was there was no like question that they were heavily uh you know heavily focused on like esoteric hitlerism and race realism and they were very very clear about this and they're like right you know i'm basically a racist and they also keep pretending to be a woman um, oddly enough, uh, this weird, like gender dysphoric thing, mm-hmm. but they're extremely racist and they're extremely, they're actually like into the caste system. I know they're Indian, but they're like, yeah. yeah, I'm the best caste. And they're like, that's how we should do it. And so what's interesting is when they switched over, they tried to, uh, you know, liberalize, so to speak, or make things seem a little bit more vague in their politics. Um, but you can trace a direct line between these, you know, esoteric fascists and their megalo need be like known
2: right yeah like did you all participate at all in the the great like uh accelerationist twitter wars of 2017
1: like that was before my time on twitter unfortunately Like
2: between like unconditional accelerationism and right accelerationism and left like that was always like the you know because i i hung out with like the the uac the unconditional accelerationism crowd And that that was always our critique of the the right accelerationist that like, you know, in its most kind of fundamental form, it's not about like personalizing or facializing the process. It's kind of this uh, stripping away of, you know, your identity and becoming flat with with that process. And we always thought that like right acceleration really with its focus on, you know, categories like race and like attempts to acquire power. Um, That they were kind of splintering off, you know, uh, not becoming flat with the process. And, you know, the like Mm -hmm. a thousand plateaus is quite clear about what happens when (laughs) you fall into that trap.
0: You can see how like Kantian they are because they feel like they use these categories like race, um, like technomics or whatever. And then like these other categories and they they confuse the categories or these imminent categories with the system in itself and so like you, you mentioned like uac i think like uac is just kind of like it's going to sound corny but it's going to like go with the flow type thing um, yeah <laughs> and it's like <laughs> i don't know why they're so hung up on uh these transcendental categories and it's just i think it just points to their um
2: landian Kantian reading i, I would agree with that and I, I think that land is a little more clever like if you do like a kind of like a really detailed, you know, breakdown of like his Xeno systems writings, like he always, you know, he he was theorizing it inside like Neoreaction, but he always yeah. made this like split between like esoteric and exoteric Neoreaction. And what we're describing is like what he would put in the like exoteric category, but like mm. the, he would never define what esoteric Neoreaction is, but it was clearly like the process as such. Um, I think that Land does kind of stay trapped in that Kantian framework that you're talking about, but sometimes he, like, inadvertently breaks it, maybe uh, um, despite his best efforts, but I'm not sure. I guess with that, um,
0: because everyone um, at least knows to some degree Stacy. I don't know, Stacy, do you want to just kind of, like, maybe bring in a little bit about yourself, I guess, an update uh, in terms of of, uh, where you move, what you're doing, and then, Ed, uh, we can do a formal kind of, like, intro to see um, for anybody that doesn't follow you on Twitter, um, kind of, like, your background.
3: So I live in New York now. Uh, I moved from Vegas, and I am just a, a graduate student doing research in philosophy uh, literature, theory, theology, um, and yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> not really, not really too interesting.
0: How's the city yeah. treating you?
3: Uh, it's it's okay. Um, it's not bad. There's certain, I certainly like feel like I've I've regressed a lot because I I feel like the city's a bit hostile and yeah. um, urban environments threaten me a little bit (laughs) but other than that it's it's fine I love it it's quite lovely yeah Yeah. um
0: what 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 research are you uh, is it just like a general program you not really have a focus or
3: I I do comp um but right now my interest is sort of mostly within nineteen. and 20th century uh, German and French uh, literature um, have a background in like German idealism, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I hate that word because like logo really ruined it for me, and I can't like say it without like self cringing. Yeah. Um, but the
0: real question is have you read Ebola's book on theosophy?
3: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I have
3: not. Dude, that, I'm not. That made my head. year.
1: <laughs> that made my year when that happened on Twitter. Oh my god!
3: Yeah, that yeah. that
1: encapsulated everything about Logo in a nutshell. Just doubling down. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. I know everything about this. I know subject. everything about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but uh, lately I've I've been uh, revisiting a lot of like Hermeneutics and stuff. Uh, Mostly mm-hmm. Heidegger. Uh, interested in like Catholic and Protestant theology. Um, I I have a Gnostic background. I came into to theology through Gnosticism, but uh, uh, other than that, yeah.
0: No. Yeah. Well, based I feel like and... it's always
3: difficult for me to talk about myself.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. Um, and I, I
3: also haven't potted in a long time. <laughs>
0: I was gonna say the the sad um, what is it called the, um, the sad departure of a cuteness unit
3: yeah yeah it's, it's tragic well we both like went our own paths and pursuing like research so now we're here separate sides of the country yeah united, that's true
0: united under united under a ghost of what still is and could be
3: still is. <laughs> network spirituality <laughs> True
0: <Yeah. networks. laughs> perfect well um, with that yeah um ed you want to can you share us a little share it to the audience a little bit about your background? And
2: yeah, sure. So I'm Ed. You might know me from Twitter as Ed Berg. Uh, as the conversation we just had might, you know, give you some idea, I kind of came out of the Twitter accelerationist sphere. Um, Since then, I've kind of straddled between the worlds of like theory and parapolitics. And mm-hmm. most recently, I've kind of found, <laughs> like, somehow, I've become like a freelance journalist in a way, and so yeah. I'm doing a lot of work on offshore finance, um, kind of uh, large scale business structures, um, stuff of that nature. So it, it's it's been a been a kind of a strange, uh, you know, path to take, but it's been interesting. And I don't know. I, I feel like the Kind of like empirical history of finance is I've, I'm better at that than I was at theory, so I'm okay <laughs> with that. Uh, so I guess eh, I don't know. Like Stacy, I'm also really bad about talking about myself, so yeah. a fair introduction, well, I think.
1: Yeah, I think like Stacy too. Uh, personally, my favorite accounts on Twitter. I think if you haven't uh, especially read Ed's work, like he's speaking about in this sort of freelance journalist. Uh, vain, then you're really missing out. Because to me, this is some of the most original work being done. And I know I'm a little bit biased, because I also have a, uh, you know, almost autistic interest in like empirical finance research. Um, yeah. But the fact that the way you're doing it, um, and the way that you're looking at uh, the history of, of sort of um, these sorts of financial mechanisms, I think is really getting at the core of the history of like liberalism and neoliberalism itself. Um, and so if you haven't read that, I really, really recommend checking out Ed on Twitter. And Ed, you have a Substack, right? Is that I, what you use?
2: I, should... I don't, I, I had a blog, um, blog. I think it's still linked in my Twitter bio. It's uh, reciprocal contradiction. Right. I haven't updated that in like two years, but I have been kind of tossing around the idea of making a Substack because I have like so much yeah. research and know where to put it. Um, but I also like I don't know <laughs> I've been really reluctant to make a Substack. I think I'm gonna finally bite the bullet maybe next week and you know, yeah. start putting that together. So Do it. Yeah, yeah, like I just yeah, there's like so much stuff you know because it's been like a three year on three year deep dive and it's like I gotta put this stuff somewhere. Um, yeah. So oh, something for people to look forward to maybe. Exactly. Yeah. I would suggest I have, I have a
1: I have substack. a question for you, Ed. Um, in sort of what I was. Uh, When I started following you too, it seemed like you were doing some really interesting stuff, collaborating with Contbot. Um, Yeah, the Suitcast. Yeah, the Suitcast. Would you mind just speaking a little bit on what that kind of work was? Because that's kind of how I first uh, started listening to you was through Suitcast.
2: Yeah, so, okay, so the way that the Suitcast kind of collaboration came about, because he was doing that before um, me and him really connected and started, like, doing stuff together. Um, You know, I was this, it was kind of early COVID. So, you know, when COVID started, like you kind of had to go a little crazy. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in like paranoia, you know, the kind of social form of it. And, you know, we could talk more about that later maybe, but I Mm -hmm. realized like if I'm going to write about paranoia, I have to be paranoid. So that's kind of like, you know, I started looking at lots of conspiracy theories. Then, you know, one thing leads to another and you start becoming a conspiracy theorist yourself. Yeah. And, you know, kind of the classic route got very interested in the JFK assassination. And you turned it turned out that, you know, CompBot was also very interested at that time about it. So, and we both kind of had, I think, kind of unique perspectives on it. So we decided to do one episode together, kind of putting our mm-hmm. two approaches together. And then when that was done, it was like, well, you know, we, we had all this kind of extra stuff that was leading into Watergate. So it's like, we'll we'll yeah. do a Watergate episode. And then the natural step from Watergate is the Iran-Contra affair. So then we did this like <laughs> massive 17-hour Iran-Contra podcast, which is like my favorite <laughs> thing that I've ever done. And it yeah. still kind of frames what I do, I continue to do to this day. I think it's like the most significant event of the 20th century. And then from there, it just kind of, we started looking because during Iran Contra, like we got into this whole thing about like tankers, like big tanker ships, the way that like resources move and the way that holding companies structure and like the laws that govern them. So then we had to go back and start like understanding like, you know, what's, what are flags of convenience? You know, how does the tanker world work? How do these, you know, tanker companies operate? So then we started to get into Uh, like all these various topics about the intersection of like high finance and like resource cartelization. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned into this kind of sprawling project about how the post-war world was built. Um, So that is kind of the, the short way of it. Um, We're we're kind of on a hiatus at the moment, just because like we've had so much stuff going on in our personal lives and you know, been Mm -hmm. busy with mutual projects and stuff. But uh, the, the two years that we were just like deep diving, this was like really remarkable. Um, um, and it really kind of like changed my perspective on on a lot. It really did. So I guess that's the short answer of the sudcast I think.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 funny you bring that up, too, because uh, the way you said that, I think, is very accurate where, you know, you start looking into like the JFK assassination mm-hmm. and you're making it all the way to like a run contra. And you're like, are these the same fucking guys? You're yeah, like, what yeah. the hell's going
2: <laughs> <it?" laughs> on? You know. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Like, I, I view the um the JFK through Iran Contra as like basically one large episode because it ended up yeah. being like the exact same people. Right. And like by the time we were doing around Contra, you know, we had to start looking into like you know, how did the oil cartel form? And we realized that it like ended up filling like by tackling that story. We ended up filling in like critical gaps in our JFK yeah. narrative. So it was always perpetually like doubling back on itself, which was an interesting little loop. And that is something that continued um, through all the episodes that we did. And it, it got kind of cumbersome after a while because it would always be like, well, you know, if you remember two years ago when we talked about this, like, you know, you'll recognize this. And then people on Twitter would be like, oh, I can't follow it's too much stuff which is maybe a fair critique like you know listening to 20 hours of like two two dudes drone about you know how canadian mining runs the world maybe it is a little uh overwhelming
1: that era is kind of like in those old movies when you see like them drilling for oil and they have that like big scaffold set up and then one yeah, day yeah. It, just, it just fucking explodes and you have a content <laughs> explosion <laughs> That's yeah what it kind of yeah felt for like.
2: sure Absolutely, and oil really—you know—it it greased that whole thing. Like that's yeah. the one thing. Like I'm—I'm I'm, I'm convinced now that the the labor theory of value is incorrect, and we need an oil theory of value. It's my—it's my new kick I'm on at the moment. <laughs> I was that's working a on kick. a I
0: like that. project about oil for a while. I was doing the, yeah, transcendental deduction of oil. Um... I read some of those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, which is—it's kind of like not. I wouldn't say it's it's like adjacent to that material analysis, um, not to not that I want to tie it directly to that because I know that you, you mentioned labor theory of value and how it's how we need kind of something new. But I think like oil as a, like a demonic substrate. I don't think that there's enough yeah. research or, um,
2: Raza, yeah, just yeah. research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what what do you guys think about the the abiotic theory of oil? The abiotic. Do you
4: even know
1: what that is? It, it's the us. idea
2: that it's the oil is not a fossil fuel. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah.
0: Okay. So now I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that it's a fossil fuel. That's why I, I don't know if you guys okay, seen yeah. my tweets recently fossil. where I was like, fossils are fake. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
4: Okay. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm into
2: that. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that's, yeah. This, this was a big thing for, you know, changing a lot of my my opinions on things was like diving into abio- uh, abiotic oil. And yeah, it's like this theory that it, um, it's like the byproduct of like chemical reactions happening under geological pressure, um, which casts doubt on a lot of issues like, you know, peak oil because peak oil is predicated on the idea that, um, you know, it's a fossil fuel that's finite, but if it's continually being produced, you know, Mm -hmm. why are oil prices so high? I don't
1: know. Yeah. That's super interesting. I, I had a, a funny teacher in like eighth grade There was, uh, I think he had a PhD. It was like some sort of chemist, older guy. And I was in his like homeroom group, you know, how you kind of have like 10 people and you have like Mm -hmm. one teacher when you kind of get to school. Some schools have that. And every day, like at lunch or whatnot, he'd just be like, I know the answer to like the whole world. And we'd just be like, what are you talking (laughs) about? And he'd just be like, you guys don't even know. I know the answer. And then one day we were like, what do you know? What do you know? And then he just has (laughs) this map of peak oil up in the classroom and he's just pointing to it. He's like, that's the answer right there.
2: <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs>
1: just completely wrong too. That was that was the interesting part of peak oil. What what's sort of your take, Ed, on uh like the concept of peak oil? I know you just kind of touched on it, but it that that was like a huge cultural reckoning. Um, I remember like 10 years ago of like, oh, we gotta prepare for peak oil. And I haven't seen much return to that you know? yeah,
2: well, well the problem is is that like oil simply isn't running out <laughs> and there's right. empirical cases where you know y- you deplete an oil well and then it over time starts to replenish itself um which kind of one is already throwing kind of problems in this idea of a, a finite supply but mm-hmm. if you really start to dig into the peak oil narrative it, you know not not to sound like kind of a you know, classic crank perspective but it was a narrative that was pushed by the oil industry and the way that the oil industry has worked historically is that it is a cartel. It manages its output in order to like affect the market price of it. And their interest is to keep that price as high as possible. And the Mm -hmm. idea that there's like a finite supply or that it's starting to dwindle really plays into that very well. That's, you know, that plays into the uh, the oil theory of value, too, because you know, the higher the price of oil, the higher the price of all your commodities, because we are in such an interconnected supply chain dense globe. Right. Um, yeah. So, I, I, you know, the, I got another kind of tinfoil take, which is that um inflation's not real and that we should actually yeah. be having like a long term deflationary trend because of technology. It's like, you know, you can't let prices keep falling. You got to keep pumping them up for for profit to happen. Right. So I think that, you know, that that's a component of it as well.
1: Yeah, that's really yeah, interesting.
2: There's a lot
0: of stuff that I kind of want to touch touch up on that. Um, sure. I think that. OK, so like I think it's cool that you mentioned um, in regards to oil supply, because I think you saw it, especially like during the covid um, pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, it's one of the first times that oil had gone into, well, not one of the first times, but it was kind of shocking to see oil go into, um, negative, um, Um, because they had, well, excess supply. A lot of that has to do also with how a oil itself is moved or stored, um, which is funny that you bring up the shipping containers, um, Mm -hmm. because not only do they consume oil, but there's also... Um you could say like uh there's oh, there's also like a shipping container cartel in a way. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, no, is. totally. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, Huge one. Which I there's think so few shipping companies like when you really break it down,
0: <laughs> which I think is just kind of how um global logistics as a whole works and then I mean how oil at least how oil is being um Because it's, okay, like during COVID, the the big thing was not so much, or the narrative, the Malthusian narrative, right, was that um, we need to move over to some sort of green energy um, substitute, that this oil is finite, and that it's a resource that's going to run out uh, anytime soon. And in the United States, at least, that narrative of like peak oil, in a way, has already climaxed, right? Because that's how the whole transition to natural gas um, kind of transpired. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, So at least to me in the United States, we've already had, we've already transitioned into a post peak oil era. And that was during uh, the Obama presidency. Um, Right.
2: That's a, that's a great point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so with that, um, I think that the, I think you just, it's just so evident that um, the, the, the biggest contributor of like oil prices is not so much the oil itself, like the actual material substrate. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, it's the actual, like, like the human, how would I say it? Like the, I guess in like accelerationist term, it's the human, um, what is it called? Uh, the human aspect or the human component of it, of managing the resources themselves. Uh, because if you saw the reason why gas prices, even during the Ukraine conflict, it was mostly because we couldn't, or there wasn't enough uh, refineries to refine the actual oil, not because it was a supply constraint, which that was the media's narrative, which is that there was a supply constraint, is actually because they couldn't refine it. Um, And that just ties back to um, how during COVID they laid off a bunch of people. And so they they had refinery capabilities, but they just didn't have people to work it. So it was a complete human supply shortage, not an oil supply shortage.
2: Yeah, Yeah. that's a great point. And I think that that also makes like, you know, we we talked about the oil market, but in a way like oil really is, you know, it's centrally planned. Um, There's also a a human decision component that affects oil prices. Like there's um, there's a guy who wrote like uh, for some oil journal. I can't remember the name of it. His name is Jim Norman. He wrote a book called The Oil Card, and in that he argues that the U.S. basically convinced the Saudis in the '80s to like cut oil production real low, which is something they did, mm-hmm. and it was kind of inexplicable. But it caused, you know, this huge spike. Or no, I'm sorry, it was the inverse. Um, they boosted oil production really high and drove the price down, and mm-hmm. it basically caused the Soviet economy to collapse because at the time their entire economy was based on the export of oil and they needed these kind of high prices <laughs> to maintain their like yeah. you know um currency shortages. So when oil was produced, being produced in mass, which was a decision that was made, it just drove you know their already struggling economy into the ground. And I, I find that to be a really provocative argument. Um the, the decision component of it because I think that when you start to put you know that into consideration, you have to ask even like larger questions about like how does the um global economy function which is you know is it a free market or is this a centrally planned machinery yeah that's something
1: that I'm really interested in that I want to kind of touch on because in in my kind of in looking at the energy market or the energy industry over even especially the past decade it's it's very interesting to me that um, energy has become more than just like a financial market, it's become kind of the uh, geopolitical battlefield of kind of the century, um, which, which kind of caught me by surprise, but makes a ton of sense. And I do want to kind of explore uh, for, for a bit why, why that may have happened and what that kind of means going forward for the economy. Yeah, we did an episode on like it was like philosophers we hate. Oh, that was fun. I like Jules. not a
3: fan of Rawls. There. <laughs>
1: Who is you know? Yeah, a lot of analytic philosophers I've learned.
0: I thought Nozick was always better. <laughs> yeah, was I mean, just terrible, I'm
1: just like he's not good either. Yeah, you know? I'm not. I'm
0: not a libertarian by any means, but I always liked Nozick's points better.
1: Yeah, I read one. The only person I read in regards to Rawls that I liked was uh, G.A. Cohen, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. The
2: analytic Marxist. Yeah, Yeah. the Marxist.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he has great critiques of of Rawls uh, from, like, the left, you could say. What is it
2: called? I I thought he had some pretty interesting kind of stuff about, like, uh, oh, my God, I can't even remember. Um, Like, like, he, he... Drew up like game theoretical scenarios on like mm-hmm. uh workers self-interest is that that's him right mm-hmm. yeah he's oh, really? really into
1: okay. that and like he he makes like very analytic points uh for sure but it's always like uh like i remember in one i read it was like about property and how like technically if someone owns property and like doesn't let you cross then you're like you're being limited in your liberty like he makes he makes like very uh like very, very analytical points using liberalism as his kind of, like, hermeneutic, and just tries to push that kind of liberal approach further than, like, the Rawlsian, like, Demsoch way.
2: That's interesting, yeah. He's pretty good.
0: What about that oil? oil?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Young, you were were saying something before we took a break and what what does that yeah
1: i'm really interested in sort of how and why oil becomes this geopolitical currency um it reminds me a lot of uh the work you do ed on like currency and gold reserves as well Mm -hmm. um i'm just particularly interested in when i was kind of growing up and watching financial markets uh one of the big changes for the energy industry was sort of the uh development of natural gas reserves in the states and -hmm. i remember explicitly there was a big debate and obama basically made it so that we would keep all the natural gas in america and we won't liquefy it and ship it what ends up happening though is if you liquefy and ship our natural gas you can sell it for almost double in europe right and so it ends up being this play for american energy independence and then now we see um, with the ability to liquefy natural gas and our, our ability to ship it, which is increasing now, it's it's almost become a geopolitical play on not just like owning the market in Europe, but to own the political influence um, in Europe that Russia's also vying for with the same currency with their oil and natural gas. And so what do you see as like the main, uh, uh, you know, source of, of that becoming like the the kind of playbook for governments
2: i i think that like you're completely correct in looking at the geopolitical significance of uh liquefied nat- natural gas and like it, it plays such a fundamental role like in the current conflict in between ukraine and russia mm-hmm. uh I, I think kind of like to step back for a minute you know there's you know, the, the narratives of the end of history and like, you know, the, the global kind of transnational uh, social formations, uh, you know, this flat free market world. I, I think that that's basically done. And we're at a point where we're seeing America kind of reinsert itself as like uh, imperial power in its like most decadent and kind of cynical form. Mm-hmm. And this plays through very strongly <laughs> with the natural gas issue. Um, Right now, the U.S. is at like its highest ever production of natural gas, and none of that is really bleeding through to like domestic Mm -hmm. consumers' prices aren't falling. And the reason is that um, with, with the breaking of these, you know, the transit of oil, natural gas from Russia into Europe with the sanctions, Europe has become like entirely dependent on America for its, you know, its own energy needs. And so this excess of natural gas that we're producing, that we're liquefying, that we're transporting is all going over there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that does buy incredible political influence for the U S if somebody relies on you for their energy, they really rely on you for, for everything. Like that's even, in some ways more important than the, you know, the status of the dollar itself, but maybe not quite because uh, it's the dollar that is the unit of currency for these uh, energy markets. Right. Um, but, you know, you couple that to other kind of moves that the U S makes, you know, it's uh, basically doing like a lend lease arrangement with Ukraine. That's racking up massive debt. For weapons Mm. and you know europe is kind of being positioned to be the body that assumes that debt so they're not only becoming dependent on america for meeting their energy demands but they're also going to be heavily indebted to the u.s and have to make payments on that so i think that that component yeah is very much um baked into it and so it's really interesting to see like the kind of pivot that the saudis are making at the same time whereas the u.s Mm. kind of positions itself as this leading natural gas supplier you see the kind of historical relationship between the u.s and the saudis you know start to crumble the saudis start pivoting more to china and russia you know the status of the petrodollar becomes um suspect which is you know always been a really key component (laughs) to the dollar itself so it sets up all kinds of interesting things but i think they're all very interlaced issues how it plays out like i'm who fucking knows <laughs> like...
1: <laughs> yeah and i mean it's interesting how parapolitics kind of plays into these things i think for for me the most interesting event maybe of the year was the bombing of the nord stream pipeline and yeah. the in- indication that that was probably u.s covert ops where do you how do you see parapolitics start to fit into this like geopolitical energy struggle
2: i i think that like um i look at parapolitics two ways like on the one hand like if we go back to say like marx he has you know his kind of abstract um circuit of capital Mm -hmm. which you know like in its most basic form is like the m to c to m delta like money commodity more money but as like his volumes go on that circuit like increasingly complexifies and you start to Mm -hmm add, you know, what goes in between each of those moments, and then it starts breaking down into almost different sectors, you know, you have your merchant capital, finance capital, commercial capital, um, and you could probably like continue to like decompose those into even more granular sectors. So like when I think about parapolitics, I tend to ground them in the circuit of capital, you know, you mm-hmm. see most of the times when we have something that we call like, quote, unquote, like a deep event, like maybe the assassination of JFK or Watergate or something like that, Mm -hmm. it's different factions of capital colliding with one another, you know, kind of expressing these imminent contradictions. And so here, you know, like it's, you know, we're not doing a conspiracy theory of history. Mm -hmm. It's a very real expression of the function of capital itself, like Marx. Positions the capitalists as just this kind of persona or mask that capital wears. I think it's just one more step into like the, from there to like the parapolitical arena, and we can draw a really smooth line. And when you start doing that, parapolitical events or, you know, series of events start to really make lots of sense, at least to me. Mm-hmm. So that's like one way that I look at it. And the other, you know, thinking of, politics itself as like an epiphenomenon of these more underlying capitalist drives uh see politics you know conspiracy is just the truth of politics you know any Mm -hmm. any like honest political science is going to be like a rigorous conspiracy theory kind of in the grandest schemes or um conspiracy theories that are in conflict with one another, conspiracies within conspiracies um So when we start to talk about energy markets, you know, I would put it in that kind of context because these are, you know, geopolitics at the end of the day is really about energy and it's about natural resources and it's about maintaining the supply lines for them, the logistical networks. Um, There are political decisions that govern that, but the political decisions themselves are just the reflection of capital itself so that's kind of i don't know if that really answered your question too much but that's how i look at it
1: yeah that's really interesting
2: it's kind of like that centralization that you guys
0: were, we were mentioning earlier and it's kind of like that uh that social aspect has to be um at least the mechanism is political but um the centralization forces themselves are capital or capital yeah capital driven um drives um i think you kind of see how it's like i think you mentioned and it's like the collision um of all of these different like capitalist drives but it's it's almost like um, what is it called like the interaction between like multiple (laughs) like nomadic war machines in a way um to use yeah yeah i think so to use like delusion terms um
2: yeah I don't know if this is like an accurate reading of Deleuze, but I've always kind of viewed the nomadic war machine as like a market force. Right. Uh, I don't know, like that that might be an inaccurate reading, but maybe one that they also hint to a little bit. So I've always kind of read them as like, a, almost like free market anti-capitalists in that sense, <laughs> uh, but not in like the cringe kind of libertarian sense of the word. So, the, the more interesting version of that. Yeah, I think
1: that's a fair reading.
2: yeah because i mean the war machine gets captured you know uh right is it starts off kind of free and mobile but gets enlisted and overcoded by the you know by the state apparatus
0: yeah it's kind of like fascism is kind of not necessarily but it's it's essentially an off branch of liberalism um and directly it hijacks the the war machine Uh, and then incorporates it And then, pretty much, over over overcodes the war machine into, or just purely relies on the war machine um, towards the death drive. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's a a funny part about their approach because, like, that you know you can verify that theoretically, but also historically as well. Like, it uh, works on both levels. It's really remarkable. I was just rereading the the nomadology and the apparatus of capture um, this week. I just, I don't know. It's very relevant in a lot of ways, especially for people who want to think through uh, you know, how to blend theory and parapolitics. I don't think you could find a better combination of plateaus than that.
1: Yeah. I, I have to get uh, a little bit of your opinion and see how tinfoil we can go with this a little bit. Sure, yeah. Because <laughs> I've always, you know, had a slight interest, and in, I think Pynchon actually lays out sort of his version of this history and against the day of sort of the weird phenomenon with with Tesla and the possibility that other forms of energy were kind of figured out that were then either suppressed or appropriated by um state or non-state actors. I've always I've always been really interested in. Um, this, this sort of idea that Tesla may have tapped into some sort of like geo power that, that could have possibly uh, been, you know, you know, uh, what would you call it? Like a non-expendable, just constantly used.
2: I mean, like, I, I don't know as much about Tesla as I should, um, but I'm, you know, speaking as a person who believes like abiotic oil theories and stuff like that, <laughs> like something I'm totally into, I could totally buy it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that they do suppress technologies quite often, you know, I think that nuclear, you know, is a suppressed technology and probably the farthest re- reaches of that. Yeah, um, definitely. So I think it's, um, if you're familiar with like Veblen, uh, his whole kind of approach is that he divides like basically commercial capital from like industrial functions mm. and he talks about how like the the commercial capital will prevent um certain technologies from being developed that might you know uh cut the, right. cut the underlying profit motive which you know if you go back to Marx like the development of technology itself does drive the rate of profit down um right. so yeah like i totally could buy some kind of strange sabotage and <laughs> yeah i haven't read against the day either it's one of the pensions i haven't gotten to yet but i didn't realize that tesla was like a, a big part of he's,
1: it yeah he's, he's in a lot of it you'd really like that one uh because what it, it's really about sort of the uh world's fair in chicago it kind of starts oh, from the famous okay. world's fair and goes to like world war one so it's kind of about that that turn of the century, like technology and the rise of, of basically like oligarchs in America versus the kind of like Blair mountain, uh, you know, major, uh, labor movements. It's a lot about like anarchists and the government Mm -hmm. and the dialectic between those two. That's the story.
2: I'll definitely have to check that out. Oh
1: yeah. You'd really like it.
0: Was it the same world fair where, um, they had like the religious conference. Um, I'm not sure where Swami Vivekananda spoke. I might only reason why it's I ask like
1: eighteen, uh, like late eighteen hundreds.
0: No, like eighteen mm-hmm. something. It was like eighties. Hang on. Would me. be ironic because that's when like the narrative, the solid, the solidified yeah, narrative of like relativization of uh, world religions, kind of like comparative religion, kind of was born. Not from that yeah.
2: moment, but where it kind of hit the mainstream um is that like important for like the theosophical movement and stuff like that yeah um so it's just like it's like the main point like if
0: you do like any like theology or like um religious studies it's kind of like the main point like they're like this is where like religion kind of this is where modernity um like the secular uh, like peak secularism kind of hit um where you had like the kind of like the relativization of all religions and how mm-hmm. at least the east um Swami Vivekananda is kind of seen as this guy that came to evangelize um Hinduism, Hinduism um in the west and how kind of kind of push this new age spiritualism to its like peak at least in the west
1: right yeah that's that's when spiritualism and theosophy are hitting their peak and that's kind of the Uh, the craze or, you know, the theological craze that people like Jung and other kind of uh, famous uh, occult related or Gnostic related people are born into. I know Jung famously uh, started studying a lot of his more occult stuff because his family was really into Mm seances and uh, there were several things he experienced as a child that he couldn't explain and so he came up with the theory of synchronicity later in his life based on that kind of like spiritualist movement
2: oh interesting yeah i I've been really interested in spiritualism, but never have had a chance to really you know, go in depth into it so this this might be a good good impetus for that I
0: think the yeah. cool place of like intersection between that and like like conspiracy is that like you know it's like you have the the complete loss of narrative or like spiritual narrative of people's lives, and then it's like mm-hmm. they need to substitute that eschatology that still is very much there it's yeah. almost like a very natural component of human quote unquote human nature um and a lot of those like eschatologies kind of bring or arise in the form of uh conspiracy theories and and it's kind of cool because i like the structure of conspiracy theories like buy them buy into the theory or not the structure itself points to an intuition that people have which is for example the one of the most popular conspiracy theories which eh, there's some truth to it but again um which is like, oh, they have the cure for cancer, but, like, they have to, like, keep <laughs> that hidden because then there's no profit. And it's well, like, you can see where the intuition lies, and then instead the actual narrative is, well, <laughs> uh, the United States uh, shorts its people from um, domestic use of its own natural resources and then imp- exports it uh, to make profit. Like, that's that's, <laughs> yeah. that's where the real conspiracy theory, well, so to speak, lies, but, you know, the cancer one's much much more interesting
2: I, I definitely agree with you and this is actually kind of what started me down the parapolitical path because um you know you you always see these critiques especially from the left of conspiracy theory you know, mm-hmm. that it's irrational that it's you know inherently anti-semitic coded um that it's destructive that it, you know you lose faith in institutions and a lot of this goes back to like the Cold War itself kind of like a technocratic perspective. Um, but you know, I was thinking it was like, for like one, like, you know, isn't it the like confronted with the world as it is, isn't that just like the most natural reaction? (laughs) Like if you're not thinking somewhat paranoid about how the world works, like there might be a problem there. It's kind of how I was thinking about it. Right. Um, then I started like thinking about Frederick Jameson's, um, he, you know, he talks about cognitive mapping, like relationship to the totality. And he critiques conspiracy theories in kind of that like normal, um, kind of left-wing mode where it's like, oh, it's faulty cognitive mapping, it's, you know, something's gone awry, it's falling from critical analysis. But then, you know, when he talks about totality and how to approach it, um, he also is like, you can't grasp it. And so he poses, you know, the allegory as that which mediates one's relationship to the totality. You can intuitively understand the totality through allegory it it didn't it kind of didn't make sense to me because it's like couldn't you just think of conspiracy theory as the allegory so i felt like there was a kind of a contradiction in Javinson's thought there and so if you think about it in that lens as like a effort to kind of grapple with the world yeah like i totally agree that it's you know it is an intuitive registering you know whether or not it's true now, that's a separate issue
0: yeah i think he's kind of trying to like vindicate like speculative politics but at the same time like undercut like the normie critique which like you mentioned it's like that um like that normie take where it's like oh well like you're sheep and you know it's kind of like the right wing mm-hmm. <laughs> mantra yeah. of like you're all sheeple and um you know you're gonna think for yourself type narrative but it's like <laughs> mm-hmm. yes <laughs> um now apply that to a more you know the, the at least the the leftist, the traditional leftists, will always say, apply that with more rigor and then you're, you know, you're doing speculative politics, uh, which mm. undermine the regime, um, which, you know, it has some, like, we should do that, but we shouldn't be so um, elitist and so, like, so quick to comply with the narrative um, or, like, the mainstream narrative because I think that's mm. the fault that lies, which is we're very quick to, you know, shut down the conspiracy, apply, um, apply a rigorous analysis to make sense of, a, of the system or make sense of, like, the mainstream narrative insofar as we try to uphold the existing structure. Like, it has to make sense. It has to have a, a logic to it because if it has too many internal contradictions, then the world doesn't make sense. And it's like, actually, no, that, that, the fact that there are so many contradictions and the world still works should give you an indication that something's wrong
2: yeah right. absolutely and you know like on the one hand like I, I do you know really heavy research but like on the flip side it's like you know maybe, maybe this is crude but like i just want things to be as like strange as possible so i'm, I'm okay with like mad proliferation of bizarre beliefs right <laughs> um that, that's the acceleration aside i guess yeah out. i was
1: about to say that's the uac and you're yeah. still there
2: <laughs> yeah it, it's still there just maybe, maybe buried a little bit
1: yeah, I think it's 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 a lot of people do this, but I think you can never, like we've been saying, underestimate the power and intuition of a conspiracy or just the power of conspiracy to sort of materialize in in our world. Mm-hmm. I think the best example for me is I, I, I'm really into the Discordian movement of like the 60s, 70s. Yeah. Um, like they're Carrie super Thornley. interesting guys. Yeah, exactly. Carrie Thornley, I think is a great example of this. Because, you know, Discordianism was invented to dispel of, like, the wrong cognitive mapping of conspiracy. It was sort of this thing making fun of conspiracy and, you know, the Church of the Subgenius. All of this stuff is trying to use conspiracy as allegory just to make a point, while pointing at conspiracy as, like, look, it's all very stupid. But at the end of the day, the conspiracy kind of overtook a lot of those people, including Thornley and Robert Anton Wilson, Mm -hmm. because, you know, Thornley... Wrote a book about Lee Harvey Oswald before he did the JFK assassination, like randomly, <laughs> yeah. you know. And Kerry ends up going crazy because he goes, you know, he's like, "Oh, all this stuff is hogwash. I don't really believe in that." And then you know, he's being followed for like a decade, you know, and everything begins to uh, point towards the the truth of a conspiracy. And I think the the Discordian kind of uh, naivete was to think that conspiracy inherently always is some sort of like disjointed cognitive mapping and not like we're saying the you know allegorical reach to fill the gap in what you already know to at least have some semblance of the totality
2: yeah absolutely and um I think with Carrie Thornley, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't he in like <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald's Marine? Like, union yeah, he was. Japan. That's how he yeah. met him. Yeah. Okay, I, I thought so, and I, I guess they ended up like in the same circles in New Orleans, but never met. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, Such an yeah. odd,
1: just an odd like situation.
2: Yeah. There's the maybe maybe union synchronicity at work,
1: <laughs> or a little uh, you know, I always think that disc- a lot of those Discordians are definitely limited hangouts. especially Wilson Robert Anton Wilson is definitely limited hangout
2: yeah uh, when I was like a teenager I really liked reading his books like the he's a good writer yeah that's one of my Uh, favorite books it's just (laughs) so fun it's such a fun book I've been tempted to pick it up and read it again because like it it was really like I I loved that book um I was thinking about you know like the cosmic trigger books and stuff and I was like I don't know if I would like that as much today I'm not sure
1: I still like, there's like, I'll read half the books. I'm like, yeah, this is a little too much, you know, but the other half, I'm like, he's always doing something at least interesting, right. you know, something new. And he's like trying to get somewhere uh, ambitious, which I'm always struck by. He doesn't like sit there and, and try and uh, you know, make everything make sense. He's trying to make as little sense as possible while making like some intuitive point.
2: Yeah. And I, I can definitely appreciate that. What's his one book? Um, is it like Prometheus Unbound? I think that was the yeah, last. Yes, Prometheus I
1: Rising. I think is, is is yeah is that book? Yeah,
2: about like that's reality very tunnels and yeah,
1: he loves a reality tunnel. Absolutely, he likes, he's basically like a Reichian. I feel like he just loves Reich.
2: I I could see that. I always wondered if he was reading lots of like Gregory Bateson. If you're familiar with Bateson at all, yeah, that's a
1: good point. I feel like he definitely gets gets into that. Or uh who's the guy who? Who had the quote like uh, "the map is not the territory"? Like coordinates. Oh you. god! What?
2: Yeah, the, the like, like general that. semantics guy. I think
1: mm-hmm. he definitely loves that. That's like, that's kind of his intellectual. Uh... Oh, and James Joyce. He's like a James Joyce. Yeah. Uh, obsessive, you know.
2: I, I have, um, you know, the like back when Simeotext first started. It did like <laughs> those big issues, like. I have that Simeotext USA. It's got like a 50 page, like Robert Anton Wilson rambling about James Joyce. Like, and yeah, it's like you know, written as like little piece, like letters from magazines cut out and stitched together. Uh, I think that's a lot more interesting than Simeotext's later output. I wish yeah, they had I would say done more <laughs> of that. It, it,
0: book's cool as hell. Yeah, I thought I think when they like release like really niche like archived <laughs> items, I'm like, okay, that's that's worth buying.
2: Right. Yeah. Or like um Yeah, like the early Cyberpunk issue they did too, which I think that Robert Anton Wilson yeah. might have helped edit. I'm not don't I think, quote me on that though. I think
3: I love the yeah. early t stuff or whatever. Yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. Like the little almost mm-hmm. pocket books. Yeah, those are cool. Yeah, I. I uh, this is not a program. <laughs> it was really formative for me at one point. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, those were so fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of another. Is it pronounced takun? Is that how they? Yeah, so. Probably.
1: I think it's t- like it's from takun olam in Hebrew. Okay. It was, yeah. I
2: don't know. When I was like, uh, I. It's it's so yeah. I it, Yeah. scholar. Like I don't know. Um.
0: <laughs> Well, did they do Invisible Committee too? They did, right?
2: They did do that. That's the one that Glenn Beck held up on television. I think. Yeah, it was. The no, best. you're right. Yeah the yeah. <laughs> the fact
0: that the fact that 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 photo exists is
1: hilarious. Yeah.
2: He's holding that it sold with sold Mal's so red copies. book, isn't he? Yeah, yeah,
1: he's holding with the red book, and it like sold so many <laughs> copies after that. It like was not a very like super popular book, and then that pretty much put it everywhere.
0: Well, it was kind of yeah, weird right? because like the marketing. I don't know if you guys were. Like, when they did the marketing for the book, they told you like go steal the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were like kind of pushing people to go like, you know, the people blah blah like go steal the book and um I don't know how many people actually stole the book, but I guess like in some yeah. places it was causing like um like an issue with the workers and they were like please don't do this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think uh, I I bought a copy of that book at like. Basically out of the trunk of somebody's car at like a punk show, so I'm pretty sure it was probably a stolen like, copy. <laughs> there of you me. go. <laughs> yes.
0: Better oh. than better than how I got that copy. I got it. a It was the only cool book at Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> they sold that at Barnes and Nobles.
1: <laughs>
3: That's, <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, it was like the philosophy <laughs> nice.
0: section, and it's a bunch of like new age spirituality and like <laughs> <Yeah>. garbage <laughs> so self help. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was. <laughs> 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 lady um, and then there was the one book about um. The, uh, what is it called uh, coming in direction which is it's oh, a they good wrote read those. I, I really yeah, I like, read the, that too. I like the one too I like the aesthetics of the book yeah, or, not, I love the, the Barnes and
2: Noble philosophy section in general oh, where it's just like it's so 15 fun. chakra books and then like 7 <laughs> Zizek books <laughs>
0: it's like somehow they always have a copy of the sublime object of ideology <laughs> yeah, yeah, some some oh to yeah be,
1: it's so fun to see
0: to be fair if th- you go into Barnes i did get Bell. my copy of um what is it called all of the they have they have the best compiled version of the plato's works thing. oh I'm yeah yeah, yeah they do have yeah compiled um, versions what is it called i think it's like the uh it's like plato collections or something like that i don't I, I don't remember when it was published i think it was like 19 something 19 i think they might have updated it recently but that's one of the best that has some of the best translations of plato's works in my opinion but, um yeah. but yeah <laughs>
2: one I thing i, I
1: oh sorry, sorry. Time.
2: oh no it's, just, it's not important it's just like i think the last thing i bought at barnes and noble was like being in time that makes sense that makes sense i could see that in barnes
0: Noble. that's a barnes and noble book (laughs) it's like somehow it was like under under uh what is it called the travel section (laughs) for germany
1: (laughs) (laughs) one thing before uh before the we we end the podcast for sure that i really want to touch on that's been you know keeping me up at night uh many a night is I really really want to get a primer on Yu-Gi-Oh ontology.
2: I didn't want to hear about Yu-Gi-Oh. I, I want to hear about this too. <laughs> no. It was,
0: guys, I I'm, I'm sorry to, dis- to touch dis- on it to disappoint you, but it, it was a shit post. <laughs> what? No, I was you just got to do it. I've been <sighs> looking forward to this for weeks, man. Oh man. Um yeah, well I mean, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um no promises on on uh, impromptu uh, rigor on my half, but um, we'll, we'll touch on it.
1: The problem of eschatology, um, for me at least, is the problem uh, philosophically of the event itself. Uh, I see death or ending or collapse or the apocalypse as a event in a philosophical sense that you can never actually predict this point of singularity. Mm -hmm. exactly because it it spans more interpretations than it could possibly you know manage and therefore we all take a certain approach to the event uh meaning we take like our own eschatology towards like you know is there a heaven or hell is the world going to end by climate change is it going to end by asteroid all of these things um tie deeply into uh you know our orientation towards the event and i think um in doing so uh the entire species or the entire being is then teleologically determined by its interpretation of the ending event and so I think in my in my opinion we need to understand that we respond to the event we in in a certain way end the world um by our very actions and we can choose to end the world um according to what we see best in an almost like a hyperstitional way you know we kind of manifest what we believe will happen or what we would fear to happen or like to happen and therefore like political eschatology is the most important um you know sort of sort of thing going forward because there needs to be some sort of actual uh you know philosophical and political debate around what what the human response to the universal event of, you know, ending will be.
2: I write a tweet this long.
3: <laughs> what is this Justin Murphy tweet? <laughs> <laughs> oh man
2: It is so long. I'm like
0: you shouldn't abuse the I think he pays for Twitter, right? He has to because yeah I don't know. I don't yeah. think I'd ever write anything that I'm like if it I'm not paying one, I'm not paying for Twitter. Two I I that's what that's what Substacks for.
2: Right, yeah. <laughs> blog, I, I think they you know, should whatever. take Twitter back to one 180 characters. Absolutely. It's uncalled for. Uh, this schizophrenic guy that was emailing me a whole bunch, just like these bizarre rambling emails. Mm-hmm. And he was convinced that I was in like some kind of cabal with um, like the Red Scare people and Curtis Yarvin, even though like I've never <laughs> talked to any of these people in my life. He's like, would you get angry if I called Justin Murphy retarded? And I was like, (laughs) what are you talking about, dude? Teal
0: Teal peeled. So funny.
2: Yeah. I know.
1: (laughs) Teal bucks. That would be sick. Can you imagine if you could get paid?
0: I'm like, hey, man. Just to do that? If Teal can sponsor this podcast, you know. Yeah. I don't (laughs) know. We'll go NRX. I'm NRX. I might go, yeah. I might go right. The money's right. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Do it for the bit Yeah. To the reactionary. <laughs> for
0: the grip. It's like suddenly I'm Catholic <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a trad. It's like I now. was also on se- 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 secession and um, am tra- trad Cath now. Yeah.
1: For <laughs> <laughs> an <in> assigned to agencies.
2: <laughs> so so. How do you get the old books? I've always wondered. Yeah, I don't know. I don't
0: know i remember they were like that's the question they were like telling con combat if he he had teal books too but yeah just it wouldn't it, make sense
3: i don't think Kant con is connected to teal money
2: yeah I, I i've talked to him a lot and i i know for certain that he does not <laughs> it'd he be funny lots if of that's like, yeah oh,
1: sorry it'd be funny no, if was... that's what teal is is funding it's just like 20 hour like Iran Contra podcast. <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> He's like, this is how I win. You
2: know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you ever look at like the the Teal found, like he has this whole like philanthropy. If you look at their tax forms, uh, he just gives like shit loads of money to people researching memetics. That's all, it's like where mm. all of his money is going.
1: Damn. That's kind of scary. <laughs> I know.
2: Dark Gerard. Dark. <laughs> Have you ever read um, you know, and this actually kind of ties into what we've been talking about. Have you ever read his uh, Zeros to One" um, business book? No. Oh, it, it, it it's like it is the weirdest fucking like self help book business like weird entrepreneur stuff you'll ever read. Because it just looks like a generic yeah, like oh, I'm gonna buy this at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Then you pick it up and it's like about like spiritual destinies and about how like the market leads to imitation and you need like this hero figure to come <laughs> in and like you know produce innovation and he talks about how startups have to be run in the form of cults and like, oh yeah and like, uh... yeah it, it's creepy but it's also like a really enjoyable read just because of how strange it is like
0: yeah. How, I'd almost believe that book more than anything, any other self-help guru, like Dave Ramsey, or, that, or, it's Dave or, Ramsey. or like finance, finance, bro. Uh, what is it called? Grifter or whatever.
2: Yeah, no, no, like, you know, quasi recommend to go check it out. <laughs> I'm not getting field books. I promise.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, But I guess with that, if, we did we did kind of uh mention eschatology so i i was yes. kind of interested to hear um you had some questions ed i think you had some questions for
2: yeah um and i think that this might like link up with the kind of accelerationist current that we've been talking about do you all view anti oedipus as a eschatological text it
0: okay so what do you What do you mean by that like because okay like an eschatological text like like the bible (laughs) you know or like what i guess what do you okay
2: so so you know there's the the famous kind of accelerationist fragment about like accelerating the process and you know there's a question about um where where is that process going Mm -hmm. um and there is a passage elsewhere in the book where they say, um, I got the quote right here. It says, uh, "We shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The body without mm-hmm. organs is the deterritorialized socius. The wilderness where the decoded flows run free. The end of the world. The apocalypse." Is that so? Is it's that the from telos this... of this book? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. apocalyptic tome. I don't know. Um, I,
1: I, I actually agree with that, because when I think of one of the stranger and more like um, transcendent kind of arguments in Oedipus, it's along these lines, too. And I, I think the way I understand it is also the fact that capitalism itself is almost in their estimation, the end of history, like you're saying, the end of all deter- like okay. planetary uh, deterritorialization of flows of desire um rests in like the complete you know uh in, like inability for anything to stop that uh eventual apocalypse that eventual complete deterritorialization
2: yeah I, I think I definitely agree with that. There's another kind of interesting point where they call like the subject like are, they they just distinctly describe it as a residue and a parasite it's like a byproduct (laughs) Mm -hmm. um Mm. and i get the impression that the ultimate destination of what they're saying is like the absolute obliteration of the subject and that's their form of apocalypse and Mm. that maybe this gets dialed back in the more restrained text of a thousand plateaus but Mm -hmm. i was always unsure whether or not i was not like inserting my own kind of weird interests into the book or not when it came to like these kind of otter passages in it.
0: Well, I think it's like interesting. Cause like, I think the passage that you're referencing, is that, is that the same chapter where they show that diagram of like capital of like, um, where I it's believe like- so. the Triangles. Yes. It's like,
2: that's like two pages prior, actually. The yeah, where it shows like schizophrenia as a clinical entity and mm-hmm. then schizophrenic process yeah. of deterritorialization. Yeah, I was mm. gonna
0: say I think yes, um, and I think this has to do with like a broader theory that I uh, I've been thinking about, is that for example, um, like eschatology itself is like a schizo- it is the process of schizophrenia as it's presented in Deleuze and Guattari. Um Primarily because, like, if you look at, like, the great traditions, like, for example, like, um, like Christianity, right? It's, like, super eschatological. And then it's, like, Mm -hmm. what it's doing in, like, for example, like, the book of Revelation or, like, even, like, the Gospel of John. I don't know if you guys have ever read the Gospel of John or, like, just the Bible in general, but, like, Mm the Gospel of John is super super schizopilled um, Mm -hmm. with how it plays with numerology. Um, There's, like, that passage in the... And in the gospel of John, where it brings up the number sequence of the fish, uh, I think it's like 153. um, Mm -hmm. Right. Where they pull it out of the net. Um, That's like a whole side point. You could have a whole podcast about, (laughs) about that, (laughs) but you know, it's like the book of revelation, for example, it's like, um, you know, it's obviously making allusions to the book of Ezekiel, which is also kind of like this apocalyptic, Uh um, apocalyptic book in a way um and so it's yes it's always like this kind of like the defragmentation or like um the stripping of the subject the individual subject and how at least like how it's able to you know it becomes a body without organs in the sense that like the only way that you could write something like the book of revelation and incorporate you know some of the imagery not because it's like oh so esoteric so you know it's like it's so crazy like the imagery is so (laughs) evocative no it's like the the fact that everything in that book refers right it's a it's like um i think it's an anti-edipus where it's like you may have an empty signifier but it still refers for example Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right Um, yeah and so you can have signification you can have a sign um and you can say you you can try to kind of say like no you know there is no strict sign regime but it's like no the fact that it still refers to something the fact that it's always still signifying. some other transcendent um that's just part of like that is the that's the whole point of a signifying regime that's what it even means for example when you um when you incorporate for example like a language we were talking about languages earlier it's like each language in itself has its own epistemological and metaphysical regime that it inhabits and so in that sense yeah like the book inherently would have to have an eschatology so to speak
3: yeah, I I agree. I'm thinking about like what cute you mentioned about the recentering of the subject and like the absence uh, signifier sign. Um, and I, I'm thinking about like the losing Guattari's anti-Oedipus and the whole intellectual tradition of uh, French post-structuralism at, at the time. And I'm reminded of like something like Derrida's like deconstruction, that there's this notion of like destroying something as a means of reconstructing um hence why like deconstruction has that word construction in it um and it's there was this sort of like focus within Derrida and in Deleuze as well like this trying to um reframe and um, the whole tradition of Western metaphysics to not focus on the subject as something like merely present, but through something like absence, and that's how we acquire knowledge of like true subjectivity is through what is inherently dead, um, or absent. Yeah,
0: yeah. I kind of see like Derrida's work with deconstruction as like an apophatic theology in a way, of, like yeah, the subject, like totally, subject yeah. subjectification um mm-hmm. no I, I definitely agree
3: and Deleuze and Glacay is 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 definitely within that whole tradition of uh de I always <laughs> of so pronouncing that word um but I I think like there's an interesting suffix like d that governs a lot of French thought um in Simone Weil it's uh de creation um there it is, deconstruction for for Deleuze,
2: it's deterritorialization. So yeah. it is interesting too in Anti Oedipus, like they do have this kind of historical schema where different social formations like have different things that block the process of deterritorialization. You know, like at one point it's the shaman that mm-hmm. carries out the blocking of it um, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but the body of the king itself like in later societies is yes. another one um then it becomes the state ultimately that like is the blockage so that creates like a very interesting genealogy and kind of shows what they expect to be like overturned through this process you know, the, the final point because like that's what makes like the accelerationist fragment too like, so, kind of ambiguous because it's about money, really, when they're, that's what mm-hmm. they're talking about in that specific section. But then they reiterate, like a time and again, that money is a function of the state itself. And so it's like kind of putting these two sides kind of in competitions. You know, can it ultimately outpace? Can the system outpace itself? Mm-hmm. Um, not sure where i'm going with that just uh well interesting
0: dynamic i guess well it's just like even how they like speak about like um like quote unquote the state apparatus because right it can take it can take different forms as you go up the uh, let's call it the eschaton ladder (laughs) Um, (laughs) where it's like yeah like the body of the king um and then it becomes the actual state apparatus um and then ultimately because they're doing in a way they're doing transcendental philosophy um Mm -hmm. It is the like the state itself is the transcendental object um of the mind. Like in itself. Like if, yeah. if anti Oedipus is anything, it's a critique of that transcendental subject, um, or the transcendental quote unquote object that they see, which is represented as a state and that's how it manifests itself. Um where it's like, you know, you have the king, um you have the the state, um and so it's so this this like metaphysical object that manifests itself like physically it actually um designates itself and there's like an interesting um essay uh, what is it called instincts and institutions yes
2: um um, yeah is it instincts or is it insects there's a very similar one or does he talk about insects in the instinct um
0: um i i for i don't remember the title of it but okay. it's essentially. I know the
2: one you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then he, you know, he kind of also kind of states that you know, like instincts are different for creatures, right? Because it's a way of mm-hmm. regulation. So it's a it's an imminent form of regulation for um, an organism, but for humans, it's um, we create institutions, for example, insofar as we create external apparatuses for for our own self regulation, and that's how you have you know the Foucaultian critique of like subject subjectification which is like we don't have an imminent structure of um, of um, like an instinct, for example, to self-regulate. We create those self-regulating systems. And then, you know, they can obviously take off and run away and and then create negative affects.
2: That's what I, I think
1: is also very interesting in the apocalyptic interpretation of Deleuze and Guattari is I think it's, it's interesting that they're signaling to me um, you know, almost like a, a, an apocalyptic process or a, a possible crisis in, I think, what Nick Land would refer to as, like, the human security system. Mm-hmm. And that includes, like, the state, uh, subjectivity, um, you know, and all of these things that have, you know, coded and regulated the world and ourselves as we know it are right now in a process of, you know, disintegration, right? And and we'll go through those limits, out into this this ending of what we now know. And I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, we tend to think of apocalypse as just like a one-time thing, like a like something that happens when in reality, I think this version of apocalypse sees, uh, you know, apocalypse as a process that leads to this teleological conclusion. And I think that fits very well with like what's happening, you know, just, just in all of our systems. Um, you know, there's a philosopher who talks about, you know, the, the idea of a monotonic process, which is Mm -hmm. in mathematics, uh, just like when an infinite number, uh, gets put in. So it's just like infinite growth. Um, and in biological systems, there's like no known, uh, instance where a monotonic process has like caught on to a biological system and as it hasn't led to its destruction. And so you can kind of use that as like kind of the, uh, uh, allegory of planet earth right now in many ways is stuck in this monotonic process of like infinite growth infinite economic growth infinite growth of uh you know desire and potential that cannot possibly uh you know sustain itself given the current like you know world and its you know sustainable properties
0: i really like that you bring this up young because I feel like it maps perfectly with what everything that we've been talking about. And even like the inclusion of like Nick land, because like, if you see the trajectory of Nick lands work, at least like the excel acce- like, even if it's not like, let's not even tie it directly to Nick land, just like the accelerationist critique of like eschatology or like material eschatology, which is like, you know, the singularity, like in the Renaissance period, for example, that's like, that's, that's an, that, that singularity point is an eschat as the end of an eschaton. Right. And right. so if you, for example, like map that on to like, um, like revelation. Right. So it's like, um, you had the, you had the system, the Byzantine empire, so to speak, or like the Roman empire for a long time. Once it fragments, you have that, that feudal period. And then ultimately in the, um, Renaissance, um, you have this like takeaway process of, um, of, uh, you guys can hear my, my clothes is ready. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have this like runaway process of like the singularity, right? Which is like the culminate that, that that event in itself is a culmination of an eschaton. Um, Mm -hmm. And in a way, like the way that it recycles, that it recycles or it, how would I, yeah, it recycles um, itself and emergent waves. um, I think that proves that there are multiple levels of eschatology working Mm on at fundamental levels of reality. And I think that maps on perfectly with, for example, even like the, I think in Kavala, which is like the, the name of God, right? Which is like if you were able to um, get, I forget, 216, the 216 letters for the name of God, right? Um, I think it's 216. Once they're able to uh, decode all 216 characters to be able to get access to the divine name, then the end of the world comes. Um, mm-hmm. so there's a true sense of eschatology there. And I think the fact that Nick land is so interested in numbers, uh, I don't think there's like a coincidence there. I, I, I think there's like some, there's like some fundamental like aspect of reality that like makes that make sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, I was struck by, uh, you know, in this sense, like, I know people talk about like the, uh, imminence like of the eschaton. Right, mm-hmm. like this this concept, which you know is is kind of a vague phrase, but in um, what we're talking about, if like apocalypse as a process, like even that, the, like the decoding of the name of God, uh, is you know the process of apocalypse itself, right? It's like the thing you do to create the apocalypse. The apocalypse is something that you do, you know what I mean? Um, or you know that you involve yourself in a process. And in in, in Pynchon's V, there's there's kind of a great kind of uh you know small passage uh and he kind of mentions he's like people think like oh the end of the world is just gonna like happen one day and that's what's going on and then he just starts listing like a bunch of like catastrophic instances from the newspaper of like trains derailing and like people dying and all these things and he's like that's the end of the world he's like that's what's the end of the world is is this slow creep of like death and you know withering destruction that we've started by engaging in this process.
2: It's kind of a different level of analysis, but you know, I, I think that what you're describing, like especially with that specific example, kind of the slow creep, I think that's a really mm. great way of describing it. That that's a fits kind of a very particular apocalyptic mold that um something I've been thinking about a lot actually, because I feel like that is very endemic to our current time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, climate change, for example, is a, a slow creeping apocalypse. Um, yeah. Financial collapse, you know, people think it's a sudden, swift thing. It's not. That's a gradual mm-hmm. process. Um, I've, if you go back to like the mid eighteen hundreds, there was a very similar proliferation, particularly in Europe, of like slow creep apocalypse scenarios. And a lot of this had to do with like the discovery of entropy as a process. Like the cultural impact of entropy registered itself in like the uh, the decadent movement in France and these uh ideas. You know, I think it's H.G. Wells who like wrote a novel mm-hmm. about the sun slowly going out, and it's you had this sudden shift where the apocalypse is no longer the sudden, swift, biblical event, but a mm-hmm. long-term winding down of mm-hmm. things. And my kind of also personal take on that is that at the time they were experiencing what was known as the Long Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a sixty-year-long economic slowdown uh, that people thought that it w- the world would never recover from. Like if you look at a lot of socialist writings from the time, it's talking about how you know the next world will have to be built on the literal rubble of the old one. And just to compare, like all of that imagery and all of that rhetoric, like the contemporary moment. Um, it's it's an uncanny resemblance because i also think we're in a similar kind of long stretch i think that yeah. kind of took your point away from you a little bit but uh yeah. yeah i guess you know earlier i said that you know societies are healthiest when they're eschatological but maybe, maybe I have to walk that back a bit because now if we were talking about it, it seems very <laughs> eschatological <laughs> yeah no, it's but, like but,
1: eschatology without our control over it though like i think there's Uh, you know, I, I, I really, uh, like, uh, Christian apocalypse theology. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a great guy like Keanu Haidani, I think is his name. He's at university of Michigan. One of my friends, um, you should read his work if you're interested in this stuff, but, uh, the idea of like ending the apocalypse being like heralded in through the Christ event and the idea of like ending the world properly right, of like ending the world by like saving as many souls as possible or of like the ushering in finally of cosmic peace is such an optimistic and, mm-hmm. you know, very beautiful form of apocalypse that we can, you know, juxtapose to just like the apocalypse of the, pa- I would call like the passive apocalypse or just things cr- of entropy and just crumbling.
2: Well, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. The, the, the entropy apocalypse is mm-hmm. like a, such a fundamental, like epistemological break, because it, it already comes from like the great yeah. embarrassment of, you know, the discovery of thermodynamics and these other processes that already like <laughs> do so much work to decenter us, you know, yeah. in the cosmos. And then you throw on top of that the fact that like, you know, this will all reach a silent, like eternal stasis, you know, this infinite heat death. <laughs> um, you know, that's the really tearing us under the the Christian apocalypse
0: right well i think there's an element just to kind of like vindicate um because i've been doing a lot of like <laughs> um i've been looking a lot into christianity recently um and kind of to like vindicate like the christian uh narrative or like apocalypse which is like um like if you look in the book of revelation and it's like you know it's like the the sign of the times for example where it's like the seven angels i mean mm-hmm. obviously the or the seven trumpets i should say like, obviously, it's directly tying to the destruction of the temple. But, I mean, even if you look at it, it's kind of like a um, typological reversal of the book of Genesis. You know, for example, there's seven creation days, mm-hmm. um, which in Revelation, it's like the reversal of that. Because if you look at the each of the plagues brought about when they play... Um, or when they sound one of the trumpets, it's a reversal of one of the creative days. Um, I think, like, one of the first ones is um, the darkening of the the lights, you know, like the destruction of one-third of the lights um, of the world. And then the second one, it's, like, the poisoning of the water. And it's, like, you know, it's a like direct typological um, reversal of, that, of the book of Genesis, which, I mean, it, again, I think that's why... I think that's why I'm really interested in Christian eschatology, which is that it it has a direct narrative to existing structures, for example, the destruction of the temple and the way that they see that as a continuation of um, Second Temple Judaism and how that then turns into, um, you know, like the narrative of the Messiah. But then it's like you can, I mean, like at least a cool part of how it applies to like um, religions in the United States is that you have, for example, like movements like um, um, like religious movements in Protestantism, where it's like, oh, the sign of the times is the the, the United Nations and like NATO, mm-hmm. and vaccinations are the si- the mark of the beast, and it's like, to some degree, like it's you know it's tying back to this notion that we were talking about earlier about like you know conspiracy has truth to it, that's why it works. Yeah. Um. Where it's like, yeah, that that's you know, it's like I think I think there is a strong aspect to. I think we're seeing a revival of, New Age spiritualism, um, and maybe we have to go through the unhealthy part first before we actually get a a real return to something, um, like authentic, like post authenticity. Um, not in like the, yeah. corny meta modern sense, but <laughs> like in a, you know, in a true post authentic sense.
2: I, I I'm really fascinated these like um. Like TikTok uh, uh apocalypse um ruminations where it's like uh I, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these but it'll be like you know in the Revelations I guess it's there's talk about like you know Satan binded you know a fallen angel or God binded a fallen angel under the earth um and it'll be like oh they found a statue of an angel in Russia and there's like all like you know shitty like, phone camera video of like people standing around looking at it and like it's the you know one of the angels from revelation and they'll be like oh uh revelation says that the euphrates will dry up and there'll be like a stock photo of like some stream in colorado and it's like it's the euphrates (laughs) um it's incredible like uh and you just find like thousands and thousands of these um it's not just limited to like kind of christian takes um there's a very strong like islamic apocalypse TikTok that i'm very interested Mm -hmm. into uh you know um a lot of them have to do with you know like the floods you know in deserts and you know so yeah people are very much reading the signs of the times and it's very yeah it disseminates over social media and reaches these like mass audiences so I, i do think that like what you're describing is yeah like a real and ongoing process
0: Well, um, I guess we're coming up on some time here. Um, with that, do you guys have any other remarks or anything else that you guys want to dive into?
2: I think we covered a lot, a lot <laughs> yeah. of
3: around here. Yeah. This is we, a good time to we did end a good it. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: On
3: regarding the end, the eschatology of things. Yeah.
0: yeah. Perfect. Um, well, I guess, do you guys have any upcoming projects or any plugins that you guys want to drop?
2: Um, let's see. We've got an upcoming book uh published by Urbanomic called Thesis on the Meta Cartel that'll be coming out mm. later this year. So, if people want to check that out, they can. Hell yeah!
3: Hell yeah! Urbanomic. That's gonna be so good. That's- yeah, I'm, <laughs> so I'm, I'm stoked.
2: It's a, uh, it's like a, they have this new series that's, I guess, two small books put together and it's like reversible, like you flip the book over and you can read one. Oh, flip is it the like, other way. And part so, of
0: their like pulp That's smart. Um,
2: yeah, it's the K-pulp yeah. uh, series. Um, so I it's think. mine's paired with another text written by uh, Vince Garten, if you're familiar with him. So looking forward to that. That'll be cool. Great. Awesome. Yeah, that'll be awesome.
3: I don't have anything. <laughs> um, just here. Do you have Maybe finals? Talking about the end. Um, no, about I have my finals. I just have. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, I have a thesis to work on but Oof. other than that i i mean like you could check out my sub stack it's like distressed yeah. not sub stack it's where i po- post like mostly like my creative writing but other than that nothing to plug no. so awesome just waiting for the end
1: yeah <laughs> you guys should check both of these people out uh we definitely consider them probably the best posters and <laughs> and best thinkers on twitter <laughs> for sure and uh yeah, we really appreciate you guys coming on. I really had a great time speaking with yeah. both
3: of you. Oh, it was Same here. a pleasure as always.
0: It was fun. A lot of fun. Well, um, if you guys are still listening, thank you for joining. And <laughs> we'll catch you on the next one.